Have you ever wondered what the transition would look like to move from a private practice setting to academic medicine? Perhaps you are considering this currently. In this podcast, we will speak with two physicians who will share their experiences in transitioning to academic faculty at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Dr. Bart Huddleston will share his various experiences working in a private inpatient and outpatient practice and then moving to an academic setting focusing on inpatient rehabilitation and consults. Dr. Ross Whitaker transitioned from a large orthopedic practice group prior to joining Vanderbilt's faculty with a focus on outpatient interventional spine. We will discuss the decision-making process, transition, and experiences to date in academic medicine. This is Aaron Yang here, and I have Dr. Huddleston and Dr. Whitaker joining us today for this podcast. So I wanted to start with you first, Dr. Huddleston. Um, yes, can you sir. give me a brief synopsis of your career to date and sort of your pathway following graduation from residency? I sure will. Thank you, Dr. Yang. Um, my name again is Dr. Bart Huddleston. I've been in practice for 25 years now. Um, I graduated from Eastern Virginia Medical School and uh, the PM&R program there in 1994. I was originally recruited by a regional medical center in Alabama to initiate an outpatient practice in physical medicine and rehabilitation. It was a very unique setting in that there were not any providers of PM&R in the region, and the CEO of the hospital knew about our specialty and was interested in having it implemented into their regional medical center. And that predominantly involved being the medical director of an outpatient rehab facility there at the hospital, as well as a full spectrum of outpatient PM&R, um, sports, pain medicine, EMG, spinal cord injury. I actually even changed a few patients' um, suprapubic catheters during those seven years. And prosthetics, again, a full array of outpatient PM&R. And I became board certified in pain medicine as well in 1996. So I was there from 94 to 2001, moved back to my home uh, town of Nashville, Tennessee, to a position as medical director of a 36-bed rehab, 12-bed Jerry Psych, actually licensed as an 111-bed hospital, freestanding, privately owned entity um, for approximately six and a half years. The last two and a half, I was asked to be the CEO of that facility, and it was part of the intention for that was to position it for sale. And that went very, very well, but it afforded me a sort of a opportunity to have to look for another position as the um, company that bought the hospital um, had 50-some other hospitals and did not have any administrative leadership that were physicians and didn't plan to change that. So that transition allowed me to move back to Texas, where my wife is from, and I, well, we both went to college at Baylor. So in 2007, I moved to Allen, Texas, and helped one of the companies that had looked at the hospital, helped them open a 40-bed rehab hospital, helped to develop um, and then open a Medicare credit. During that time, there were several things about that position that were uh, evolved to be negative for a lasting opportunity, and I can touch on those in some of the other questions at a later time. But I then transitioned to working with Baylor University Medical Center in Dallas and helped um, them develop their outpatient satellite practices and began using MSK ultrasound in approximately 2009, as well as PRP in some of the uh, settings there, and then focused actually on the ultrasound piece and began traveling and teaching some of the ultrasound uh, skills 
And then ultimately in 2013, I came back to Nashville. My parents were old and ailing, basically, and really became uh, important for me to be back. And I always anticipated that as a long-term goal. And so at that point, I was a medical director of, a, of an HCA facility uh, on an inpatient basis. I did that for a couple of years and then realized that I was just sort of been there and done that mindset, and that was not really a very healthy mindset and had the privilege to be asked to be a part of the faculty at Vanderbilt University Medical Center and was hired there to initiate their acute care consult service and also uh, provide outpatient practice support. So that's from 1994 to 2017 and it is 2020. So I've been here approximately three years and it's been a wonderful experience. Thanks so much for that, Dr. Huddleston. Dr. Whitaker, how about for you, tell us a little bit about your transition out of residency into where you currently are now at Vanderbilt. Sure, yeah. Again, Ross Whitaker. I did my training at the University of Michigan up in Ann Arbor, and I finished up in 2007. Uh, I really didn't know what I wanted to do going into medical school, and I sort of found myself in PM&R, which has been a happy accident. Uh, And then listening to Bart, I realized I've got an incredibly narrow scope of practice overall, it sounds. So, the first thing I did after residency was start looking for fellowships, and I got accepted into a few for pain medicine. But I had done so many injections to that point in my career that I actually started looking for jobs concurrently. And so I took a job with uh, a group in southern Indiana. It was a big orthopedic outfit. I was roughly the 15th provider, I think, hired, plus multiple extenders. Uh, by the time I left, 11 years later, it had grown to about 20 MD or DO providers with about 12 extenders and 150 employees. So that was a great opportunity, actually. It afforded me quite a bit of chance to not only see how medicine can be practiced and to interact with my surgical colleagues, but it also gave me quite an insight into the business aspect of, of how medicine can run in the private sector. And as you heard from Bart's sort of history, private practice simply doesn't mean just one entity, right? There are multiple styles, be it multi-provider one site or single provider multi-site, et cetera. So I happen to be at a single-style provider uh, line, again, orthopedic surgeons. There were three physiatrists. I was the third hired. There were two other podiatrists at the time as well. But we were involved in land acquisition. We bought quite a bit of real estate. We actually bought land out from under a hospital that was going to be built. So I helped negotiate several of the land deals and some of the real estate dealings we had. And so that was um, actually a a very eye-opening experience as to my first foray into medicine uh, as we all go in, I think we're wide-eyed and ready to help patients, but then you, you also get afforded opportunities along the way to look at other aspects of uh, what medicine and medical care can entail. That was a good experience overall, and uh, ultimately, they'll end up being a, a little bit too busy for my liking, quite honestly, which is a good problem to have many times, but I think all of us transition through life where we what our expectations are at some point is not our expectations five or ten years down the road. So it began uh, really sort of getting in my way with planning my life around my now-growing kids, uh, et cetera. So I began looking for other opportunities. I was fortunate enough to find what I thought was a pretty good fit here at, uh, at Vanderbilt in Nashville, kind of a fledgling program still in its infancy, which was actually very attractive to me, especially given the quality of the physician level here. I tell you, it's really been a great experience uh, meeting such high-quality providers and, and being afforded this chance to see sort of a, a small department beginning to grow uh, and now sort of burgeon at the seams, and now we embrace new challenges of trying to grow that even further. So it's been a good journey thus far. Uh, There's a big transition coming, you know, again, from the private sector back down to Nashville on many fronts, but I'm sure we'll get into that in, uh, in further questions. Thanks so much for that, Dr. Whitaker. So you touched upon 
some of the decisions for you to enter academic medicine after being in private practice. You mentioned about, you know, just sort of the family dynamics and that changing, maybe trying to spend more time with the family. Were there any other decision-making processes that went into that for you about making that transition from private practice to academics or any other thoughts on that? Sure, yeah. It was a challenging time in as much as I was feeling overwhelmed with sort of the process of how my individual private practice had been laid out. And so it was a very uh, sort of overhead heavy, but also very busy practice. And so the the day-to-day just sort of hustle and bustle was really sort of taxing. Uh, So I was looking for a a space where I could perhaps, you know, take my foot off the gas, as it were, and perhaps slow down my my patient experience individually. But also, I, I did miss having the chance to help residents along the way and then sort of help people not make the same mistakes I had perceived myself making over the first few years in practice because for anybody who comes out of training, it's it's quite a learning curve. It doesn't matter. You know, the quality of your own training really kind of pales in comparison to what you learn in those first two or three years of practice just about yourself and about how you interact with people. So, so I think as I became more mature in that process, I realized, hey, I really enjoy getting back with the trainees, and, and that was a big part of my decision as well. Plus, the chance to give some, some more national talks or do some talks on a larger scale, I think, was also appealing. So so those are some of the things I considered making that transition. Great, great. Um, how about for you, Dr. Huddleston? What sort of factors influenced your decision to join our academic faculty here? Well, going back to my original practice in 1994, I was asked to develop, uh, implement, develop an outpatient PMNR physician practice in a setting where most of the physicians in this regional medical center community did not have a clue what our specialty was or did. That was, a, you know, perhaps a little bit of naivety, but also an intriguing challenge. And so that experience was a wonderful experience, educating and implementing our specialty within a healthcare community. And when, you know, just a couple of years ago, the opportunity arose here at Vanderbilt for an academic physician in the department to assist or to pilot the acute care inpatient physical medicine consult service, it was something very different, but yet also very, very familiar and appealing to, again, be a part of the implementation of our specialty into a medical community in which there were uh, many uh, areas of lack of understanding, absent understanding, um, and dynamics that made that very similar to how I started in practice and also very challenging. I also, when when traveling and teaching the MSK ultrasound uh, 2009 to 2015, 16 or so, the opportunity to teach other physicians was just very, very, very pleasurable. And to stay in an academic learning environment and to mentor physicians in all aspects of our specialty was an incredibly uh, appealing part of this role in academic physiatry. How about for you, Bart, when you um, made the uh, decision to join academic medicine and you knew you had to close your practice that you were at or just communicating with other people and patients, what was that process like for you? Well, there's uh, two sides to this, or two different really settings. One is going to be if you're a part of a, a larger practice of a number of physicians, whether different specialties or purely uh, physiatry, there is some built-in check and balances as one departs from that setting that is typically handled by patients then diffusing to their partners and, and the management of the practice 
facilitating some of that uh, closure in a in a sort of almost behind the scenes way. And when you're in a small practice or a solo practice, as I was for seven years, communication is probably the key um, in communicating with your patients, giving adequate time for them to assimilate and think through where and how they're going to have that piece of the puzzle managed in their lives. And some of these relationships, you know, have been years in duration, especially with the type of patients that we see. Um, And so, you know, several months prior to my departure, a letter going out to every active patient and also in that letter describing providers who have uh, I had spoken with and also would agree to take on patients from my practice and then uh, giving access for your patients to medical records without cost that's my opinion I don't but the access to records of your practice is really critical some for some reason don't seem to understand the gravity of being difficult in obtaining records for their patients and and so that is one very, very important piece of the puzzle for anybody anticipating transitioning out of a private practice into an academic setting. And then also, if it's a solo or a very small practice that at that point is not bought out or or does not uh, taken over by an individual, then actually maintaining a phone service for approximately, again, this is all a little bit flexible, but for a period of time, whether a month or uh, at least a period of time afterwards that there is somebody um, manning a phone for questions, concerns, and difficulty in that transition. Again, the key being communication to your patients. It will be the number one way to avoid medical legal issues um, in that kind of transition. Yeah, that's a great point. I didn't think about, you know, for a smaller solo practice about communicating with other people who are willing to take on your patients, ability mm-hmm. to get records, you know, those are important things I think we take for granted. Um, what about you, Dr. Whitaker? You know, you're part of a large orthopedic group who you already had multiple partners. I can imagine some of the challenges might be similar and different from what Dr. Huddleston mentioned. Yes, as I listened to Bart, there were, you know, it rung very true. He's exactly right, especially I think uh, speaking to the communication part with your patients, making sure they have access to their records. So I found myself in an odd scenario is certainly not the first nor the last person to leave that group, and they've hired many since. Uh, So with a higher turnover entity like that, they already have, as Bart alluded to, a behind-the-scenes setup where letters are going out, calls are being made, patients are informed well ahead, which honestly ended up being a little bit premature. Uh, When I left, it ended up being a farewell parade for about six months, which was somewhat equally burdensome, but in a good way and a bad way at the same time. Um, But certainly as you transition those folks over to you know, part of that load went to my internal cohort there, but also there were people who simply didn't want to see the other providers there. And so that became actually slightly tricky, which uh, getting their medical records delivered elsewhere outside of the practice when you're departing a practice that is still, again, going in your absence, uh, that I found actually to be the, the toughest road to navigate. Uh, and that you almost have to deal with, uh, again, we, we gave patients quite a bit of heads up and leeway there on the front end uh, on the order of six months or so, so we could sort of help them get their medical records, ship them off. I made several personal calls to a variety of other friends outside of that group, uh, as Bart did as well, it sounds. So I think the key is simply just trying to do right by the folks who you are to a degree leaving uh, and making sure that you assist them and, uh, you know, making sure someone else is picking up that flag that you've left there for them. Uh, And so that can be a challenging process. But, again, I think giving them enough headway, making sure that you're trying to facilitate the best you can, and making sure, as Bart alluded to, 
uh, in your absence, so two to three months later even, uh, many calls are still being made, uh, and you do have to have some uh, methodology for those patients to get through to someone who has answers about what they do next. Great. Thank you for that. Um, what about you, Dr. Whitaker, um, as you may already made the transition and you have been practicing you know, within an academic setting for a little bit now, what's been your overall experience with the transition and any unexpected challenges that you've encountered so far? Yeah, this sounds like a more of a beer and pizza discussion here. This is <laughs> going to get deep, right? You know, it's funny. I think all of us, we view the world through the prism that we've already had in our hand. And so as you make a transition anywhere, be it private practice to academia, vice versa, private practice to accounting, whatever your transition may be, you bring along a, a laundry list, really, of presuppositions. So I had a lot of assumptions, I think, coming into another practice uh, that maybe didn't at least bear out in the same way I thought they would. You know, for instance, staffing ratios, the things that I'm responsible for on a daily basis that had been covered by other ancillary personnel prior was somewhat of a shock to the system. I thought I had deployed the chute well enough to slow my reentry, uh, you know, but I still came crashing in a little bit uh, with some expectations, I think, again, of, of staffing demarcations. You know, there, I, I think the lines perhaps in academia are a little muddier as people share responsibilities or nurse call pools share responsibilities, and you, you, you sometimes don't necessarily have that point person that you had in, in private practice. I, I would say that there is a Typically, and this is probably true irrespective of whether it's a solo practitioner or a multi-specialty group, there's a bit of a uh, defined hierarchy in terms of who handles what problem, to what degree do they need to get involved before you know the tertiary levels are involved, et cetera. And so I think that when you get into the academic setting now uh, with so many employees and so many providers, uh, those lines become a little blurred, and that, and that hierarchy, I think, can be occasionally difficult to navigate because it's sometimes you're, you're moving laterally, really, not up the chain, as it were. So so I think that was probably the most, uh, you know, there's many other differences we could discuss if time allows, but I think that was perhaps the most striking to me initially. Thanks for that. How about you, Dr. Huddleston? There were several or have been several. I can't agree with Ross uh, in observation of some of the inefficiencies in, the, in a clinic process that in an academic setting, it's, it, we're not really considered primarily revenue silos. So there, in a traditional, busy, private practice, there are so many efficiencies that, if, if it's managed well, that are put into place to create and enable volume and revenue. And then a point person or persons are critical is a part of that efficiency. And in this setting, it's a different mindset, and it's intentionally a different mindset. I consider very positive, but it does lead to uh, some challenges, as Ross just outlined, that I've observed. Another part is, for me particularly, um, we operate, uh, again, I consider this a, a, a great part of my experience. We operate as a team as opposed to a primary revenue generator is the impetus. And if a chairman or residency director changes an idea or path or direction in their leadership responsibility, it is something that, you know, you can be doing one thing one day and then potentially be doing something somewhat different six months from now as a contributing component to that team. Um, so it, it that I considered something I didn't quite expect, but it makes sense as you look at the operational part of, of a, an academic setting. 
the last thing was just sort of our specialty um, was the the most recent in the last 40 years at Vanderbilt Acute Care Hospital to be implemented within that hospital in this consult service process. And there were and are a lot of very loud and clear and also some very um, silent and unexpected political waves that I did not anticipate um, that were very, very interesting and have been challenging, but mostly in a positive way, really necessitating effort more in the um, professional relationship building as opposed to, as I would have thought, implementing you know the, uh, excellence in medical management of a patient from the aspect of, of our specialty. So that that part of it was similar to a couple of my previous settings in practice. I was thankfully had experienced, but not quite at this level, um, and uh, has been mostly a very positive, but also very entertaining challenge. Yeah, thanks for that. And so to close, again, I appreciate all your uh, input here. Um, the last question is going to be almost like a two-part question. Uh, we'll start with you first, Bart. If you yeah. had to talk to yourself from where you are now, uh, right before you were about to make the transition to academics, what mm-hmm. would you tell yourself, knowing what you know now, and what would you tell yourself in sort of like an encouragement of what you have found rewarding about academic medicine to reinforce that decision? I would particularly emphasize that my background and even how we are trained in our specialty in such diverse conditions, diverse treatment tools, but in my particular life experience professionally being medical director of a rehab hospital, being in a private solo practice, being a part of a larger group outpatient, you know, PM&R practice, I would give myself comforting words that my background had prepared me for the multitude of ways that I have already had the privilege to work within this department, some of which I did not expect whatsoever. However, our specialty and our training, in a way, prepare us, our mindset, but my clinical practice had prepared me very well for that particular transition, and I did not realize how many parts of that that I would actually utilize in an academic setting. That's great. That's great. And what do you think you found the most rewarding so far uh, practicing in an academic setting? I think the most enjoyable component is the mentoring aspect with uh, physicians in learning in our residents as well as interacting with interns and residents of many different specialties now on the consult service. It's just refreshing uh, and encouraging and it's such a privilege to be a part of a of a setting like this. Great, great. Now how about for you, uh, Dr. Whitaker? Uh, what would you tell yourself, knowing what you know now, uh, right before you're about to make that transition to academics? Uh, Any time I jump into a new endeavor, I always sort of kind of remind myself, really, I guess, of two things uh, at this point in my career. One is you know, try to treat people well, right? I mean, I've never, ever made myself taller by cutting down those around me. So you always have to, I think, remember that as you go into a setting. You know, you're, you're not going to be the smartest guy in the room and appreciate that fact, right? And, and absorb what you can and reflect what you can, too, back to those who need it. But 
I think kind of recognizing, you know, where you're at and making sure that you always uh, treat people as you would want to be treated, number one. And number two, I think that I had to remind myself a little bit to, to say no. That's sort of how I got into a bad spot in my private practice to begin with, is that I just kept saying yes to everything, and pretty soon I was covered up. And honestly, if you can't take care of yourself, it's really hard to take care of others, including your staff, not just patients. So I think all of us have a certain bandwidth we have to try to try to keep ourselves within, right, and make sure that we are taking care of the things that we are tackling well, because if you spread yourself too thin, uh, and that again, applies to not just patient volumes in the private sector, but all the things you can get involved in in the academic setting, be it too much you know, research, cutting to your patient time, cutting into your private life, et cetera. I think you need to stay within that bandwidth that you've set up and make sure that you're handling all the things on your plate to the best of your ability. I think we'll find that much more satisfying than getting spread too thin on, on maybe two or three extra projects. Great point. What about so far for you, what have you been found the uh, most rewarding since your transition? Well, I would echo Bart's sentiment. I mean, again, the trainees and the, the educational portion of this, I think, has been very satisfying for me, and it, and it is as I expected, I suppose. But I think the other thing I, I really didn't anticipate but have come to appreciate is that we're all sort of on the same medical journey, and some of us who have been doing this for a few years just happen to be further down that path. And so, and Bart knows this well, we, you know, some of the most satisfying sort of lessons that we teach are the life lessons about, hey, you know, here's the hurdles I encountered, and here's how I skirted them so that people aren't you know, spinning their wheels or having undue frustration, making the mistakes you've already made. So, so I think sometimes steering people away from certain pitfalls is actually more satisfying to me than, uh, you know, giving a lecture or going through a didactic session. Great, great. Well, I really appreciate both of your guys' input. I mean, I could say from my perspective and just seeing how the residents, how much they learn from having you guys around and how invaluable it is, the experience that you bring in the private practice realm can really shape our department in a very unique way that, you know, sometimes someone like myself in academics cannot share that with the residents. So I think that's been really helpful to have you guys be such an integral part of this department. So I really appreciate your time, and I hope this is helpful to the um, general audience who's listening to this podcast. Thanks again. Thanks, Father. Thank you. We appreciate you joining us on this podcast. We hope you found it helpful to hear from physicians who made the transition from private practice to academic medicine and learn from their experiences. Although every physician will have different experiences in making this transition, we believe that this information will be generalizable and informative to your own career journey.